Welcome to our podcast called Versed with Scott Tittle, a Vime Capital podcast, where we will be interviewing leaders in the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of the profession. We'll be discussing issues top of mind to them so our listeners can be even more well-versed as they tackle their day. This podcast is powered by Viome Capital, a new national financial services firm focused exclusively on providing capital solutions to the seniors' housing and healthcare sectors. For more information, you can find us at viomecapital.com. I'm your host, Scott Siddle. This is Versed. I'd like to welcome to our most recent episode of Verse Podcast, uh, my former boss, longtime mentor, and even longer time friend, uh, Aka NCAL CEO and President Mark Parkinson. Mark, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks, Scott. Great to be here. I never felt like I was your boss, but it was great to work together. Well, those were really interesting times and really appreciate the opportunity to come out to DC and work with you and the team on behalf of the sector. And we're going to talk about some of those things today we got a chance to work on, but I uh, really want to thank you for being here. And we don't have a lot of time today. I like to keep these uh, episodes pretty short. Um, so I want to kind of jump right in. But I do want to ask you a question just to start off with our listeners. I've never asked you this. So I've just thought I'd be curious for me personally, but also for our listeners. You know, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of COVID, uh, mm-hmm. March of 2023 here. And I want you to think back to that weekend in March of 2020, maybe in a couple of days before, um, you know, when pe- when the country started to realize that COVID was going to be a significant issue for our country. But also from your perspective, where were you exactly when you realized this was going to be a significant issue for our sector? Um, I know exactly where I was. I was in Las Vegas. We were hosting our regional uh, multi-council, which are people that own between 10 and 40 buildings. And Robin Dale, who at that time was our state exec in Washington state, called in to tell us what had happened at Kirkland and how challenging it was. And of course, I knew about COVID. We all did. But it was that moment and hearing him discuss what had happened in the facility and really telling us what a great facility Kirkland was, five-star facility with really great track record, great management, et cetera. That's when it hit me that this could end up in what I thought at the time might be hundreds of buildings. It ended up being in you know every building in the country, but it was really that, that moment in Vegas. And that was the last in-person meeting we had for like a year and a half. Yeah. So that was so that was probably during the end of that week, kind of that Thursday, Friday before that weekend, and then it was it was like the last week of February, maybe the first week of March of 2020. Yeah, interesting to think back to those times. For me, it was a couple of days later. Um, you may remember um, uh, NCAL hosts an in-house general counsel roundtable every year at the AHLA spring meeting, which is focused all on long-term care and the law. And I was on that Monday morning, uh, was in a meeting with all of our members at the time and the general counsels of the largest assisted living operators in the country, many of whom were from the Pacific Northwest. And Marcus, fellow lawyers, this was just a fascinating discussion among really smart people that were on the <clears throat> operational side, the legal side, trying to issue spot COVID going forward. And it'd be really fascinating to get that group of people back together again, to think about where we were then, early questions like, when you have a positive case, who do you have to notify? What are local and public health officials saying about this? Uh, do you have to quarantine? Where CMS on? So, really, some fascinating legal questions at the time. But I've always wanted to ask you that question: exactly where you were and and thinking back. So, um, so let's just jump forward, kind of where we are today. I mean, a lot of the country, as we know, has moved on, but our sector, you know, certainly not impacted the same way it has been over COVID, but still very much present in our buildings. Where are we in terms of COVID positivity rates, mortality, and the all important question of sniff census? Sure, there's still a ton of COVID out there. If you look at the graphs. There's almost as much COVID in nursing homes and in the general population as there was in the spring of 2020 when we thought we were at our worst. We weren't at our worst, of course. We we peaked out 
towards the end of 2020 in terms of mortality, in terms of total cases, we just peaked out recently with the Omicron variant. But there's still a lot of COVID out there. The really good news is that um, very few people are going to the hospital and even fewer are dying. So the mortality rates are basically at all-time lows. The hospitalization rates are basically at all-time lows. Unfortunately for the sector, the business challenges continue, and, and it's twofold. It's census and it's workforce. On the census side, we're about 60% back in recovering our pre-pandemic census, but the recovery is really slow. At the, at the pace that we were at in 2022, it will take all of 2023 and maybe even a little bit into 2024 to get back to pre-pandemic census. On the workforce side, it's hard to know if we'll ever get back where we were because this has never happened before. You know, we had 1.5 million workers in buildings before the pandemic. We have 210,000 less workers right now. Every other part of the healthcare spectrum has recovered its workforce. There's more people working in doctor's offices and home health and hospice and in hospitals today than there was before the pandemic, but 210,000 less in nursing homes. So we don't know. The, the, it has recovered a little bit. We were at one point down 240,000 workers, but I think the loss in, of workers is, uh, is is the longest term challenge that we'll have coming out of this. Yeah. And we're going to talk about President Biden's minimum staffing ratio uh, proposal here in a little bit, which certainly has impacted all, by all those numbers. But uh, again, for our listeners, I kind of want it interesting to have a bookend discussion about where we were three years ago and where we are today. And great to hear you think that there will be some census recovery on the SNF side, albeit slower than everybody would hope and expect. But what well, Mark, let's just, we got just got through the midterm elections and, and, uh, and the, and really the follow on the elections, which is the speaker election on the house kind of where are we in the leadership of the house and Senate and what are your thoughts about any challenges or opportunities for the sector uh, on Capitol Hill this year? Yeah, I think the sector has never been in better shape with our relationships on Capitol Hill. On both the Republican and Democratic side, Senate and House, we've got people that have spent time in nursing homes, that have toured our buildings, that have had long relationships with members and providers, and that I think get it. I think we're in good shape on the Hill. And because there's divided government now, with the R's having the House and the D's having the Senate, very little will happen on Capitol Hill. They'll they'll be fortunate if they can just pass the bills to keep the government open, let alone, you know, all the other things that it would be either good or bad for them to do. So I don't think very much will happen up on the Hill for the next couple of years. Um, you know, we'll get through the 2024 election, see who the president is, see who controls the House and the Senate, and then go from there. Very little on the Hill, but there will be a ton of activity from the administration. What presidents do, what governors do when they can no longer get things done in their legislative bodies is they start trying to do everything administratively. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what the Biden administration is doing. They kind of forget that there are three branches of government and they just kind of run off and try to do everything on their own. The minimum staffing requirements are a perfect example. They tried to get it done through Congress, they couldn't. So they said, okay, we'll just do it on our own. So our challenge in DC is not on the Hill, our challenge is with the administration. Yeah. So um, I want to ask you about the minimum staff ratio in just a minute, because I know you've got an update on that. But um, one thought I know our listeners, certainly on the investment side, want to know is in any additional relief coming from Capitol Hill? It sounds like likely not. I mean, we've gotten so much money as a sector through the provider relief fund and um, a lot of money at the state level now. Is that right? So so say a little about where are some opportunities still for the sector in, in yeah. pulling down some federal or state stimulus money? You know, we feel like we have three chances. So the three things that we're working on for 2023 are first to keep the public health emergency going as long as possible. There are still about 10 states that have Medicaid add-ons that are tied to extension of the, of the PHE. 
It's now extended till April 11th. I think most folks in town think that that's it. We're going to keep lobbying to try to keep it going longer. The, the longer it goes, the better for the sector. The second is our Medicare rate. A core function of ACA is to make sure that we get a market basket increase every year. That rule will come out around May 1. We feel confident that we're in good shape. There are people you know, trying to shoot, shoot at us and asking for Medicare reductions. We don't we think we can fight that off and there'll be a Medicare increase again this year. And then thirdly, it's our work with the states. As you indicated, it's the states that by and large are still flush with cash. Some of them have money that they have to spend on COVID or else it's going to go back to the federal government. So we've been working closer than ever with our 50 state execs to try to access those funds. It's been hit and miss, but in most states, there's been some pretty good relief provided and we're really doubling down our efforts in 2023 in the states. Yeah. And we've highlighted in some of our past interview guests, some of the work that's been done in the states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and yeah. to say the least, and there've been some real successes wins. there. Yeah. yeah. On yeah. the public and, health- and Really a lot of great wins, just to, just about everywhere. Unfortunately, a handful of states, not yet. So. Yeah. And on the public health emergency, I've heard you say that that is one of the most significant um, programs or really the most significant efforts that the federal government could could continue forward to really help the sector, not only financially, but also through regulatory relief and three-day stay and Exactly. Any, any any work that could be done from the advocacy that we could help with to, to extend it one more time or through the yeah. just likely it. Well, know? we've done, you know, that's been our philosophy every quarter. So, you know, there were people that thought this would just this would end, you know, in the middle of last year. And so every quarter we've been saying just one more quarter, let's keep pushing it, blah, blah, blah. The administration will make this decision. They said 60 days in advance of April 11th. So that so the really key date is February 11th. Um, and any contact Heck, of CMS and HHS just saying, hey, keep this thing going is helpful. They're going to make the decision primarily based upon the data, how much COVID is out there in the general population. Um, but we will continue to advocate. We've had, you know, we've continued to have ads on the air in D.C. encouraging them to continue the public health emergency. The hospitals agree with us on this. So we've been working with those associations and we'll push it really hard until February 11th. And then we'll find out then if, if, if they'll extend it anymore again. 100, you know, almost 100% of the consultants in DC think this thing is ends on April. But, you know, because of the amount of money involved for our providers, we're continuing to push it. Yeah, I've certainly read too. A lot of state Medicaid directors just re recognize they're not ready either for all these unwinding plans. Yep. I mean, there was some significant number that you put out in a survey, 20 to 25 states, just indicate they're not ready to unwind the PHE just yet. So right. hopefully there's more work to be done there. Mark, we've kind of talked a little bit about the minimum staffing ratio uh, proposal, and you've got an update for our, our listeners. Maybe share a little bit about what you know now and and what maybe we could expect to be released here sometime soon. Well, I, what we now know is that it's going to be released with our payment rule. So it will come out around May 1. We haven't been clear on the timing before. Uh, it's it's probably the single worst public policy idea that I've ever seen in my you know very long life in public policy. We just don't have the workers. And, and even if the workers were out there, we don't have the funding to pay for them. Despite that, the administration seems very committed to doing this. There's an echo chamber that they are surrounded by of advocates who don't understand what we do, other people that want nursing homes closed, various groups that have done studies on the sector. And they're just listening and talking to each other. And you know what we have to make sure is that they hear from other voices. So we are initiating a, a campaign uh, right now to encourage people to contact CMS and HHS before the rule comes out. Um, and we'll, you know, we hope to generate thousands of, of emails and, and letters before the rule comes out. We'll be pushing it after the rule comes out. We'll be pushing it after the final rule. If the rule is not good, 
Um, so it's it's all hands on deck, but it's a policy. It just it cannot work. The workers aren't there. Yeah, and just to quote a couple of numbers, I know you put out your association, but just for the holidays, um, almost about just shy of two hundred thousand additional staff members would likely be needed on the front lines to comply with the rule. Ninety four percent of those surveyed indicate they could not comply with the rule going forward, and and their numbers indicate that it could be a, a total cost of about eleven billion additional dollars. You know, to sort of to to uh, eleven to, billion a year. A year. And, and so who's going to pay for that? We'd, we'd have to come up with 50,000 additional RNs, which is just absurd. They're just not there. Yeah. Um, it's a pol- It's just, it doesn't make any sense, but you know, it looks like the administration's forging ahead. So we're going to, we're going to have to fight it. Well, I know our listeners, our clients, our sponsors, our referral partners all stand ready to help however we can, Mark. So we'll look forward to getting information from the association and really hitting all of our contacts in DC as best we can to help with the advocacy. So, Great. yeah. Um, Mark, I want to turn to a couple of things kind of looking forward. You know, we've talked about some pretty tough challenges of the sector. I know you're an eternal optimist and have a real, a real bright thought about where we're all going here. Uh, you, like me, share a, a real affinity for Winston Churchill. Um, mm-hmm. And I know I love the quote you use about Churchill thinking about how we can write our own history. Maybe share that quote and, and why you think it's applicable to, for, for operators and owners right now and where, where, how they could use it to really uh, carve a way through all this going sure. forward. Well, I think Churchill was asked if he was worried about how history would treat him. And he said, I don't worry about that because I intend to write history. I intend to write my own history. And I think that that's what providers have to do. We we can't just sit around and wait and hope that things get better. We have to take the bull by the horns and write our own history. And so, you know, what we see um, aggressive, innovative providers doing is really developing a population health management strategy which I think is a really good way to control your own future, getting really good at taking care of residents and then figuring out a way to get paid to do it is a really important piece of this. We also see folks, particularly because of the workforce crisis, doubling down on their employee engagement and satisfaction programs. If you look at facilities and operators that are doing well, it's people that have really focused on that. As difficult as things are on the business side, 31% of buildings are now back at or above pre-pandemic census. And the exact same number, 31% of buildings, according to the PBJ data, are using no agency. So it is very, very hard. But, you know, if we, if we sit, you know, I, I, I love something, I think it's in seven habits where they talk about when, when things are bad, you know, if you're, if you're not a successful person, you look out the window to see who you can blame. But, but what highly successful people do is they look in the mirror and at themselves and try to figure out, is there anything that they can do? And I think this is a time for us to look in the mirror, figure out what can we do in our operations to be one of those 31% that are at or above pre-pandemic census and that aren't using agency. And it's not easy and it's, it's not possible in many markets. I mean, if you're in a rural area and there just aren't people there, you know, you can't be a part of that group. But there are, there are things that providers can do. Yeah. And just to highlight a little bit of the work that OCCAL has done to lead on this, I know you've created a whole team internally to help operators think through how to go down the pro- walk down the walk down the process of, of creating a, a population health management program, whether it's an ISNIP or DSNIP, think about networks and the like. So I know you've got a whole team thinking about how to help uh, operators be successful here. Right. Yeah. And then we 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 want we want every member, whether they have one building or two hundred to be able to have the opportunity to participate in population health management. So we've, we've hired what I think is an all-star team of people that our members can call and for free get advice and information about what their options are. Yeah. 
And then just for, for our listeners, especially those small operators, you know, our, our mutual friend, Tom Coble, who's a small operator yep. of Oklahoma, went down this path early and has created a very successful program. So operators of all sizes can, can be successful in this area. They can be. And even if you have one building in a rural part of the country, you can participate in population health management. We want, we want to help you figure that out. Yeah. One an additional prong, I think, of operators taking control of their future, uh, one, one focus we certainly have here on the finance side is how to think about helping operators through uh, various programs like HUD. I know you're a big fan of HUD, and maybe share a little bit about why you've, you've really encouraged a lot of your uh, members to sort of think about looking at HUD finance. Well, Stacy and I were independent operators, and we didn't have any financial investors. So the way that we did our operation was one building at a time. We built all of our buildings from the ground up. And we didn't come into it with a whole bunch of money. We came into it with enough money to, to put down 20% for our first building, but that's all we had. And then from then on, we were just scratching and clawing and trying to figure out how to get up the next building to the next building. And, you know, I ended up signing tens of millions, Stacy too, tens of millions of notes with banks, which is good. And as long as you're making your payments, the banks love you and they invite you to play golf and, you know, you, you become friends. I ended up on a bank board and all of that. But the problem is those interest rates reset typically somewhere between five and 10 years from when, from when you enter into your agreement. And interest rates change. And you might start out with a pretty good rate, but as we've seen here in the last six months, interest rates can go up dramatically. So the great thing about a HUD loan is that the rates don't reset every five or 10 years. It's set for the life of the loan, which typically I think is a 35-year payout. And... The, the 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 borrower doesn't have to guarantee the note. And so if things suddenly go wrong in one of your buildings, you're not broke. You haven't lost everything that you built up over time. So we always thought that total success for us, you know, there are a lot of different benchmarks. One is getting the building approved, getting the building built, getting the building operating well, getting it full. But we didn't feel like we had com been completely successful until we were able to close our HUD loan. And that's the point where we could sleep at night, at least as it related to that one building. So, you know, what a lot of folks I think have come to realize over the last six months is that interest rates can go up very quickly and very dramatically. And if you're not locked into a rate, you have a massive interest rate risk. We're now in a little bit of a lull, right? Rates have come back here just a little bit over the last you know, 30 or 60 days. And I just, you know, I encourage every provider I know that if you're not locked into a long-term rate, you need to look and take a look at it because it, it it just makes total sense. Yeah. I just saw this morning, the rates were just a little below 5% too on the HUD side. So uh, for all the reasons you demonstrated and talked about and heard you, you really uh, encourage operators at, in small group meetings and in, in large conference calls to take a look at HUD as a, as a way to kind of take control of your destiny, right? Is to really uh, have some confidence and stabilize your finances going forward. And so- Really appreciate your encouragement there, especially for small independent owners, assisted living operators, not-for-profits alike. Yeah, there are many operators and they don't realize it yet because their rates haven't reset. But their single biggest risk is not CMS. Their single biggest risk are escalating interest rates because yeah. of what can do to your cash flow. So anyway, yeah, I could go on and on about this and no one ever listens to me because I was begging people to refinance when you could close a HUD loan in the twos and people yeah. weren't doing it. So... Well, we appreciate your encouragement, and it's a, another way that you know you can you know, you've, you're helping operators think through working through these difficult times, and that's just another another way they can think through it too. So, you know, Mark, we've we've gone through a lot of big topics in a short period of time today, um, and I know uh, again. We'd love to have you back at some point. Uh, I know we're at maybe a year from now. I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about in the 2024 presidential general election cycle. So really appreciate your leadership in DC and helping the sector through these very difficult times. 
Um, I want to ask you one more question that um, I ask every every guest, which is what's on your nightstand, which is just another mm-hmm. way of saying kind of what, what are you reading right now? What do you recommend? I know you're a voracious reader. Uh, you named your, uh, your your oldest child middle name Atticus after Atticus Finch. <laughs> I think you've got a grandchild after a, a Harry Potter character. I mean, this for our, for our listeners, we're talking to a, a real uh, a real reader here. So, any, anything you're reading right now that you recommend? Well, my my sister, who I love desperately, got me a, a Promised Land, which is Obama's the first part of his series of his his autobiography on his election and early years in the in the White House. And I'm reading that. He's a great writer and a, and a great person, and I'm enjoying that. Yeah. Well, Mark, I don't know if you remember one of the very first times we met. Um, was way back in, in Long Beach, California. And we shared, we were talking about some books and you you re- realized that I also have an affinity for uh, politics and work for a governor. And, and you said, hey, you really should read a book called What It Takes. Mm. And I ordered that book and I've been always waiting all these years for you to ask me if I ever read it. Uh, you know, it's about 900 pages long. Uh, it's about the 1988 election cycle. I did get through a lot of it. It is a fascinating read. And so uh, I do encourage people to think about that book, especially as we're thinking about leadership in our country and future leadership and challenges and what it takes to run to be president of the United States. The, the great thing I like about that book, and just coincidentally, I was thinking about that book a few months ago because I was giving a speech about leadership, is that there are some leadership lessons out of that that have nothing to do with politics which basically what it takes for to succeed in most things is a real passion and a willingness just to work your tail off. Yeah. Um, George Bush won the, the Republican nomination because he wrote, I think it was 6,000 handwritten notes to people in Iowa that he happened to come across. But I, I have this theory that you know people can work harder than they maybe think that they can. And I sometimes use the example of Bush and, and what it takes it, as an example of that. You're right. You got to have a ton of time because that book takes forever to read, but it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I always appreciate you recommending to me at that time. And Mark, again, thanks for your time today. Um, I, I, it's been a great honor for us to have you on, on a first right. podcast and hope our listeners enjoyed it. Uh, again, I'd love to have yeah. you on sometime in the, in the future and catch we, up. We appreciate Viam and you all helping us with our events. You guys have stepped up and, and we appreciate that partnership and look forward to it continuing for a long time. Well, thanks so much, Mark. And we look forward to working with you and your team in 2023 to help uh, fight the good fight in D.C. and our state capitals. So uh, for our listeners, hope you enjoyed our conversation today. This is Versed. 